Welcome to Knox Talk, talking all things Knoxville with Robbie Sands and Lauren Rutherford. Hey guys, my name is Robbie Sands and welcome to Knox Talk. Today we have an awesome episode for you guys set up. I have Lauren Rutherford with me and as always I have Patrick Hoffman who is dying laughing in the corner. (laughs) I can't get a break. We don't know what's going on with yeah, everything, that. Going, everything's going wonky today. I can't, I can't get a break. My sinuses are trying to crawl out through my nose. It's, mm. it's not lot. cute. Mm. It's not cute. And everything's break. Okay, I'm done. I'm done. Are, we, are we doing that again or are we good with it? No, we're good. We're, okay. Keep going. Keep moving. And, and today's a special episode because we have a, a voice and, and a face of the black community with us who's going to... Um, explain the mission and and some of the focus, uh, concentrated focus that's going on in Knoxville and some mm-hmm. of the changes. So we always talk about Knoxville. It's important that we let people know what's going on in Knoxville. But today we're getting kind of an exclusive with one of the the leaders of mm-hmm. the of the movement going on right now in Knoxville, and that's Constance Every. Thank you. Yeah, and 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 again, thank you from all of us for being here today. Yes. We really appreciate it. Yes, I appreciate so you guys. To to find out where. <laughs> we are going we have to f- first look at the past and right. see see what's happened and, and what's going on so can you tell us a little bit about yourself like have you always lived in knoxville mm-hmm. okay and just just dive in if you don't mind and tell yeah, us a little yeah. bit about yourself so yeah i'm born and raised i'm from knoxville tennessee okay I was born right here in the, in the community of knoxville uh i have predominantly no it's not predominantly i have lived my entire life in the east knoxville community okay uh, i attended green school at that time it was green school before it became green magnet okay. uh i went to host middle school which was after that it was a high school before it was a middle school um and then in the 1992 thousand era uh knox county schools had started initiating what was known as the zoning policy because that was their attempt to try to diversify the most the heavily predominantly black schools and vice versa heavily predominantly white schools with a mixed culture. Um, and so since at that time, my parents were living in Hosting Hills and currently that is still where we reside at. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. I was out to Gibbs, but that's where I graduated from. Okay. Um, and then once I completed my high school or my um, K through 12 education, I then uh, proceeded on to go ahead and attend school at Vanderbilt University. Uh, I later then transferred to Austin P State University because I joined the military. Um, and then uh, after I finished my 15 years of service in the military, I did finally return home and finish my uh, uh, educational studies here at the University of Tennessee in microbiology. Um, and so, Whoa. yeah. Wow. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, Knoxville is home to me. as always has been. Um, I'm from the era of Knoxville where the Burlington Business District was vibrant and live. Uh, I'm from the era of Knoxville when the Magnolia Strip was the strip of the city before it became Cumberland. Mm-hmm. Magnolia was the strip you went to to get the food and the action and everything yeah. else. Uh, I am from Knoxville in the capacity of watching it evolve from that era to where it is today. Um, and that is frustrating to see once upon a time a, a community that you grew up in and known so well to have so many pieces that were uh, needed and a part of that to watch it become what it is today uh, definitely makes you stop and ask the question of what uh, Marvin Gaye song what's going on you know what I'm saying Um, and so at that point when I started you know realizing that there was changes happening but 
these evolvements of growth and development were being basically stripped from the East Knoxville and then pushed out to other areas, you know, particularly West Knoxville has quite a bit of development. Um, we had started as a whole, not just myself, but even elders and community members that started saying, we need to figure out where our funding dollars are going to, because it's obvious that they're not putting it here, but the question is where and then why, so that we can figure out how we can get it back to over here. So that's kind of what started leading me into getting involved and starting to get a part of the voices and the leadership that says that we need as much resources and services, if not more, than where you're putting it at. And at this time, we're not going to continue to tolerate watching one area develop and evolve while another one just dies out and depletes. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you, sorry. You're fine. Go ahead. How did you, like, first start? I'm sure, like, Mm. there's so many people out there that's like, I want to do this. But how... Mm. What was that like for you, especially in Knoxville? So I think that this ties back to my military duty. Um, You know, like I said, I got out of the military in 2015, um, and I did a lot of different jobs. I even contracted a a little bit for Google and Apple for a hot second, and then I came home from that. And, uh, you know, I I did. I just worked a lot of different jobs around the country, literally. Um, But, you know, I was also being neglectful, number one. I came back from Afghanistan. Um, and the military, the, and that's why I said there's some failures in our government from all chains. You know, the military took me a one week discharge. Like, you know, one week I went through medical, one day I went through mental health, one day I went through this, one day I went that. And so there was no real analyzation of me to say, are you okay? Are you doing well? Are you, you know, nobody was really checking that. And so when I came home, and the reality of not being in the military, like, you know, 15 years is a long time. So you definitely, even though you may think you're not part of the system, well, you are, you know what I'm saying? And so starting to have that reality crashing on me. Like, you know, I'm not in the military anymore. I'm really a civilian now. And the way that I'm used to structural lifestyle, the wake up, get up, do this, do that, that's not realistic for me anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, also having the reality of um, – having mental health. And what does that look like now? You know, in the military, it was easy to cover it up or maybe not so easy to stick out because we all had it. And so, and then again, like I said, we were in a systematic design of keeping things together on order and on point. So you didn't really have opportunity maybe for mental health to flare up in those spaces where now it's a free game on me because I'm not in those structures. And now my mental health is able to have its own articulation and start to impose and imply things. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, you're having your sleep disturbed and you start having insomnia and you realize it's been a week and I ain't even closed my eyes all day, you know? Right. Like just things like that started coming up. And so I started realizing, okay, I'm going to slow it down a little bit and I'm at the work on my mental health. Um, and then when I started having the challenges of maintaining a job, like I did go through a period at one time, I went through 10 jobs in one year and my mental health was just clashing really, really bad. And I started drinking really heavily too, trying to compensate that. Um, and so I made it some, I, but then like I said, again, I was still looking at the community and what was happening. And then I think what made it really personal is when some of my childhood friends started dying in the streets to gun violence and particularly drug gun violence at that. Like it wasn't game related. It was more drug related game violence. Mm-hmm. And so when I started looking at that and I was like, okay, we need to start figuring out some answers for our community. And I was like, you know, the military has definitely given me many tools and skill sets. I am educated background. So I understand, articulate things. Um, one of the things I didn't mention was that my educational minor at UT is in Africana studies. So I was fully aware of the history. Like, how do we get 
here. Mm-hmm. And there's yeah. a historical reference, like you said. There is a time frame that uncycled and, and changed over and steps and people here did their part and then this person did this part and then somebody dropped the torch and it didn't happen. And then somebody picked it back up and it started going again. And so I just realized that at that point, the answer to the solutions or the answers to the problems in the black community were going to come from that, the black community. It wasn't going to be outsiders coming in and saying, well, we see that this needs to be a new building put here and this is going to solve every problem. It was like, no, no. The answers are going to come from the community because where you see a building that may need to be put up, we might see a bank. We might see a healthcare facility. We might see a grocery store. And so, again, it was like we had to be the ones to talk about how that was going to happen. And so... My first organization is Sleeves for Knees. That's how we started. Because I thought, okay, step one is in order for the community to care and take care of itself, the first step is we have to understand that we are the resources that are taking care and providing those services of care. And so I was like, we have to instill self-love again back into our community. And I thought one of the ways we could do that is a nonprofit that would service you uh, no matter what, like no cost. Like, you know, some nonprofits in order to get service and assistance from them, they ask you to pay like five or ten bucks. But I'm like, you know, if I'm a homeless person, I don't have five or ten bucks. Right. Or if I'm a single mom with three children who's in sports and other things, I don't have five or ten bucks. Right. And so I thought the best way to instill self-love and self-care back in the community was do it for free because you flat out see people need the help. Right. Why do you have to pay me for when I can see that you need that help? Matter of fact, why do you got to fill out 100 forms if I can see that you need that help? Mm-hmm. And so I created an organization that was less barrier. Like, I'm not going to make you jump through a 1,000 hoops. If you're living on the street, I can see that you're living on the street. You can't jump through the Right, streets. so let me help you get off the street instead right. of saying, well, now fill out this 100-page form and tell me how you got here. Yeah. So demeaning the process of some of those applications that people yes. have to go through to get help. And I thought, we don't need that. We need to help people and let people know somebody does care, somebody does love you, mm-hmm. and start focusing in a holistic restoration of people instead of demeaning them and embarrassing them because they are at the bottom right, right. now. So Sleeps and Needs was birthed out of that. Um, and, and what is their primary objective? Just so everyone okay. who's watching this is clear yeah. on what yeah. Sleeps for Needs is. So Sleeps for Needs is a 501c3 social service organization. We help everybody. I help Elderly people, disabled people, homeless people, uh, you know, people in East Knoxville, South Knoxville, West Knoxville, East Knoxville. We even have extended out to surrounding counties. I've been to Sevierville, Alcoa, Lenore City, Oak Ridge, um, Maryland. I mean, we've been all over the place because we are such a free need-based organization services. Like I said, that's food, personal hygiene products, clothing, shelter. Uh, I give veterans uh, on the weekends, I provide them what I call temporary shelter. I put them in hotels for the weekends so that way they can get a break off the streets and, you know, we try to link up with some VA resources and services for them. So when they come out, we can start rehabilitating that way. But, like, again, as a veteran PTSD, I know the necessity of needing a quiet space. And so we try to take the veterans off the streets and put them in temporary housing sometimes. Um, You know, the elderly, we provide them with medical supplies and resources. You know, they have done so much in Social Security and Medicare, and they're just stripping those programs that are really designed for our elderly need. And so when I have a person telling me that I got to take 12 types of medication, but I can only afford four or five, so I'm going out the other four or three, well, we're picking that up because I'm like, no, you need all your medication. Somebody loves you and wants you to stay alive. And so let's see if we can provide those necessary medications for you. So we buy the medication. We provide the diapers that maybe grams or unks need or, you know, the toilets or the beds, you know, all types of equipment. I mean, there's no limitation. It's We've just been all helping. encompassing. Yeah, 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 just the all-around 
holistic care, the yeah. shelter, the uh, food, the water, the need-based necessity is step one in restoring a person. And that's what Sleeps Needs focus on. Sleeps Needs focus on the, re- the step one of restoration of you, which is are your basic needs and services being provided? And if not, we will help you. We'll figure it out. I don't always have our everything, and that's how I've been <laughs> able to collaborate with other organizations that do have some of these things. And so we started there, and like I tell you all the time, people call my phone, I'm like, I need this and that third. If we can get it, we get it. If not, I might be like, okay, let me call you back, or here's what you need to call. Tell them I said I sent you, so that way you can get that help. Um, and it has went amazing for us, especially coronavirus. We was on ground zero mm. March 13th when coronavirus hit our area and really took over. Myself and Next Step Initiative are probably the only two organizations I know for a fact that were on ground zero since day one. Literally. God, that just had to have presented such a, an even more extreme set of factors that you were having to deal with on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. I mean, thinking about you know hand sanitizer right. and masks right. and all um, that. Food, cleaning products, all that started coming across the table because, I mean, we watched coronavirus hit our employment cycle in a few ways. The first way, we saw some people just flat out get laid off. Like, the doors closed and they were like, we're gone. Then we saw some businesses being like, okay, well, we started seeing the front line or the essential stuff started Mm -hmm. coming up. And so we saw a wave where some people were trying to figure out or their businesses were trying to figure out if they were deemed essential frontliners or if they were like, "Mm, we don't have to do that. And so we saw a second wave where some people started getting laid off or hours started being cut. Um, And then most recently, we're kind of here at the back end, the third wave hit where we started seeing actual businesses starting to close. Like, we just yeah. can't afford we can't hang around we can't right. do this we're not financially capable and shame on the federal government because i blame them for that that ppp funding they should have made sure that went to the bottom and not to the top first they let multi-billionaire millionaire organizations and business suck yep. that money up when the people who really need it which was what your moms and pop shops small business mm-hmm. um it's interesting the true definition of small business is a very interesting definition it's not what we think it oh, is I know. Yeah. um but that didn't make it down to the bottom and so now you watch mom and pop shops close that we're paying for 20 or 20 25 so people to be their employees and that goes and so you know as i told people people be like well what is some of the top demands of your services right now during corona food is number one food is the top demand i'm serious like food is top i think the second one in the beginning was cleaning products and all that stuff but now the second one is actually becoming clothing Mm -hmm. and the third one because you know eviction processes went into effect today you know, today they can start evicting people really? right now. Uh, and I believe from, from some of the information I've been getting sharing with other uh, organizations about KUB and other things like that, but eviction and KUB is in effect today. They can come and cut your lights and <laughs> kick you out your house today, starting today on that. Um, and so now that's becoming the third highest demand, which I'm expecting here and maybe in a couple more weeks actually flip and go to the top um, because people are going to start getting these evictions and these light uh, notices and other things like that. And the reality is that if you have not been working over the last three months, you cannot afford anything that they bring into your door. Um, and so, yes, we're gearing up to re- help and assist in that space because it is definitely coming our way. It's ultimate go time. It right is. Now. It is. It yes. is. So how does how, how does someone, if they want to contribute to the Sleeves for Needs cause, how do they go about that? Is it a monetary donation that they send to your organization? or What's the best way to help? So it's both. Uh, you can go to the website, www.sleevesforneeds.org. Mm-hmm. And uh, click that donate button. And uh, by all means, please make a donation if you can. Um, if you don't want to do monetary, you want to do more of a resource. Uh, like I said, the top resources we need right now are food and clothing. Uh, so anybody that may own a grocery store, have connections to those types of things, please provide it to us because we're more than happy to work with uh, food resourcing. Um, and again, a lot of people donate to CARM. A lot of people donate to Goodwill. But the difference between us and those organizations, we don't charge for anything. We give it straight away. Just like you gave it to me, I'm giving it back out the door. 
door. We make zero profit on any donation that comes in the door other than the cash. Even with that, we don't make any money. Everybody that works on my board, everybody that works in my organization is volunteer-based. All our funds go straight out the door to the in-need demographic. We don't keep anything in this organization. That's great. Um, and so if you want to do that, uh, you can send us an email at sleevesforknees at gmail.com. Make sure you put donation into the uh, subject bar and then tell me what your donation is. And we can coordinate either for a drop-off point or for a pickup with you. Um, you can do that through the website. Again, there's a whole contact form on the back end that allows you to contact me or our organization for either A, to donate or B, to receive assistance. So you can easily fill out that contact form. It'll come right to the email and we'll see it and then we'll figure out how to coordinate with you from there. So those are the two ways you can absolutely support Sleeves and these right now. And if you're in the Knoxville area, my Facebook is great. Sleeves and these got a whole Facebook page. Inbox us. Like, hey, I got a donation. Hey, I got this. Whatever it is, inbox us. Tell us what you got going on. And we will collaborate with someone from our team with you so we can get that uh, resource or that donation that you're trying to offer and services with. We really appreciate people that have been pouring out because community's been amazing. We survive off the community. The day I started this, it was um, – to be honest, it has changed. Like we're getting services and assistance from everybody now. But right. when we first started, it was the black community that supported this organization. It was a lot of people who had clothes and shoes and, you know, could bake food and all these types of things. And so <laughs> it was it was crazy in the beginning. I was just like, Well, this really might pop off and Sure enough, it has popped off. That's yeah. <laughs> so, sorry. Before we move on to mm. uh, our next topic, what is like? What is the overall vision of where you want to take Sleeves for Needs? Like, where does where do you see it going? So, the goal of Sleeves for Needs to me is to become a global based organization. Mm -hmm. You know, there are people in need everywhere. You know, I tell people all the time. Like, you know, I tell people all the time, who has more in the world? Are there more rich people or more poor people? There's more poor people in the world. And so what we're dealing with in America right here in Knoxville, Tennessee, is like this big compared to what it is to some other areas. And Sleeves and Needs wants to help everybody. That's why the logo is designed with the globe. That's what we're indicating. This is a global-based organization. Uh, we're not there yet, but we will be America's Red Cross. Yeah. We will be... Um, UNICEF and United Way. We will be these organizations because our goal is that we are taking resources, no one's making any money, and we're pushing it right back out the door to those who are in need. Um, now, I can't per se talk about every organization, how they design, but I tell you all the time, go look up the Forbes 100 uh, nonprofit organizations. Some of these organizations are billionaires in the game. Mm. Billionaires. Yeah. And they were receiving PPP money. Mm -hmm. It's like, for what? You don't need that. You know, I, I find it offensive that even our own local government gave uh, United Way half a million. For what? United Way is a billionaire in the game. They don't need our half a million dollars of, of, of our tax dollars. That was tax money at that. And so it's like, could our council and our mayor not found a better way to resource that down to the grassroots level? Like, I know Next yeah. Step could have definitely used the money. I know we could have used the money. I know um, Harm Prevention out of East Tennessee could have used the money. You know, there are many grassroots yeah. that could have used that. Black Mama Bell, I could have used it. Community Defense of East Tennessee. Shoreline Foundation. It's so many grassroots that could have used that half a million and been more effective and more efficient in reaching those in need than United Way will ever be. And so that's the concern we have. You know, when you're seeing that type of stuff happen, it's like, again, as I tell you before, just like there are uh Businesses like for-profit business that profit off of poverty, understand your nonprofits are profiting off of poverty too. And so, again, that's why I tell people, look at the legitimacy of the organization that you're serving or donating to. And also, talk to some of the recipients. You know, Absolutely. I tell people all the time that you want you can talk to CARM recipients any day you want to because they're already down there underneath the bridge. Mm -hmm. Go talk to those people and ask them, what is it like with VMC, CARM, and Salvation Army? 
Let them tell you. I, I'm not going to tell you. Let them tell you because they are the one that received those services and assistance. And if you find from their 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 uh, clientele base that this is what's happening, then I would highly suggest that you find another organization that doesn't mistreat the people and does service and do the right thing with their resources and services. I think it's something really wrong when an organization like CAR makes $18 million a year and we have 10,000 plus homeless people. What are you doing with your money? That's my first question. What are you doing with your money? So I have a really quick question. Where did the name Sleeves for Needs come from? <laughs> you know, <laughs> if I told you this was universally inclined, you might look at me like I'm a little bit crazy. But it was. It was. Um, no, for real. Um, it comes from the concept of we wear our hearts on our sleeves. Oh, yes. yes okay. And so Sleeves for Needs wears its hearts on its sleeves for those in need. Sleeves for like needs. It. I like it. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and then real quick, I'll hit on some of the other ones. And So then... Off of that, we have two more social justice organizations, Black Coffee and Black Lives Matter, right? So Black Coffee was birthed out of Sleeves for Needs because when you're dealing with social services, you see a lot of social injustice. Mm -hmm. And I was like, you know, we got to start advocating that. So this is where my voice came from. This is where my mouth opened up because when I was down there helping people and people was telling me the challenges they have, you know, we do free lawn care services in the summer and they were telling me how the city's coming by and telling these people that they got to cut their grass or they're going to charge them $500 and they can't even afford a $40 cut. And so, you know, yeah. it was just these things that was going on. Right. Yeah. And I said, okay, we have to start raising awareness to this. Cause I was like, okay, who deals with this? Like, who does this really come back to? Like the chain of command concept, see the military, the chain of command, who <laughs> does this go to when it's here? but where do we go from here? And the first step is your local government, your locally elected officials. So then I started saying, okay, we got to start going down there and saying something to these people. I later learned, this is how the leadership level came together as a whole. I later learned when I first went to my first, first um, school board meeting. The first time I ever spoke was at the school board meeting last year when we found out that they were trying to defund the project grant. Remember that? It was a packed house down at the city county building that night. Um, and the first time I spoke, that's what I spoke about. Because at that time, the school board wanted to take Project Grad out of the lower income communities of AE and Fulton, and they wanted to put it in, like, Hardin Valley and Gibbs. Places where, not saying children might not be able to afford education there, but, I, you know, it was like they have the more opportunity than the areas that it was sitting at. And like I told the school board, wouldn't it make sense to find a way to funnel those children into the program versus snatching it out and then putting it somewhere else and then everybody looking crazy. We're like, we know the kids in Harder Valley, most of them can afford that. Right. We know the kids in Gifts, most of them can afford that. So it's like, why well, take a program that's for kids that are in need and snatch it away for kids that are not necessarily not not in need, but they don't have the numbers right. compared right. to this area. Yes. And so, uh, yeah, that was my first time ever speaking at city council. Um, and I brought the house down. I didn't mean to. I just I was honest. And I was just being honest in that moment. And that was when I first spoke. And after the word, several of the black elders from the community came to me and said, you have a gift that is rare. Um, there's like many people come to the mic and speak. Many people have a lot of ideals and thoughts and things. They's like, but the delivery and the effectiveness. They's like, you have the ability to stir people's emotions when you talk. Yes. Like something moves in people when they hear that. I can feel your yeah. passion here. Yeah. And so they were like, you need to take that gift and hone it and now use it for the value of your community and those in need. Yeah. And so that's when I started speaking more and more. And then it became to a point where people was like, oh, but you got a nonprofit and you can't be doing that. You know, that's against the rule. And I was like, but I'm constant savory. I am sleeping with these, but I'm also yeah. constant savory. <laughs> right. So then some friends around me came forward and was like, you know what? Let's design you a 501c4 for the advocacy side. 
So that way, whether you are speaking as consistory, sleeps and these black coffee, it doesn't matter. Let them figure it out. Because yeah. now you're legal all around. It doesn't matter. So yeah, so that was what evolved black coffee justice coming out. It was like, yeah, well, let's get a protector for sleep sneeze because sleep sneeze is a great thing going. We don't nobody trying to get at that or trying to yeah. destroy that. So black coffee was birthed out. Okay. And so that gave me full reign. It's like, oh, we can do whatever we want now. And so now I endorse candidates. I do all kinds of stuff under black coffee. Um, but then, like I said before, I was able to start collaborating with people like David Hayes and Amelia Parker and Andre Canty and Amani and, um, you know, Black Mama Bell Out, Community Defense Resistance. East Tennessee, Atkin, uh, Justice Knotts, the Knotts County Education, uh, uh, Knotts County School Education Coalition. You know, all these organizations yeah. started coming mm -hmm. at me. And so it was like, okay, dope. And then how I got into Black Lives Matter is that David and Amelia are the original founders of the Black Lives Matter chapter here mm -hmm. in Knottsville. Okay. Um, and it kind of died off a little bit because they pursued political ambition or okay. political need. It was a need. It's not even ambition. We need political representation. So they yeah. took that role to say we're going here. And so when they moved towards the political platform, they came to me and said, Khan, nobody's running black coffee, so we want you to take the torch to black coffee. And I said, okay, easy. I'm just going to umbrella my two organizations of black coffee justice and black lives matter together and that'll be easy and then we'll have the sister org of sleep some needs as our service resource today um and so that's kind of how i got into the black lives matter scene because it was basically the torch was passed to me and like we wow. need you to carry this forward while we go do these other pieces now yeah, wow. yeah. i mean an honor too yeah to oh it was dope i loved every bit of it it was yeah. dope yeah oh. yeah so how long have you been in that role uh, so I moved into the Black Lives Matter leadership role last year, sometime last year when they were campaigning around sometime last year when the campaign was like in the heat of the heat. I want to say maybe last summer. So maybe I've been in Black Lives Matter for a year now, okay. for about a year. Okay. Yeah. And same time with Black Coffee Justice, because Black Coffee was birthed September the 10th of last year. So both of the organizations are hitting right around one year old frame right now. Now, will you, will you explain a little bit of what Black Coffee is? Oh, so Black Coffee is um, it's, 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 uh, the slogan of Black Coffee is accountability serves strong. <laughs> and so the oh, point well. yeah 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 <laughs> so the point of black coffee was a platform to advocate for the social injustice that we were facing through the social service side but it was also a point where we was like okay we can start using black coffee to educate people on the justice and the political side of the fence that comes with the needs base and the in the businesses and the economics and other things that come with it um, because in every justice i'm sorry in every economical move there is some type of legislation that's in place for that as well as the fact there's some type of economic in place for that mm -hmm. um and so we have started realizing people are not voting appropriately because they're lacking that information and so then the other part was how are we going to start figuring out fi figuring out people candidates See, critical okay. factor, you know. Right. Uh, and, and my thing is that I get frustrated with candidates that we have just had. Because, see, the thing I bring up is I tell the people all the time, pay attention to the candidates who patron your community during election time and pay attention mm -hmm. to the ones who don't. Meaning, like, right. when it's election season, they all in your face, all at every event, everywhere to be seen. And as soon as they right. get their vote or not their vote, they vanish in the thin air. You only see them no more. Yeah. I said, pay attention to that. Because we're not going to keep voting for people like that. Because right. everybody knows. And now, smart politicians know you can't win an election without the black vote. Everybody knows that, right? Like, everybody knows that you got to have a black vote somewhere if you want to have a shot at mm -hmm. whatever office you're running for. Mm -hmm. And so, we have had a problem. I, and that's when I started looking at the history. I was like, okay. Part of the reason East Knoxville got to it, where is that? Is representation. Because people that we were voting in office that was supposed to be taking our interest were not doing that. They were patroning the vote. And then once they got their votes, they ran out of there and we never heard from them again. Right. And unfortunately, I hate to say it, 
But it was both black and white politicians. And I thought it was even worse for the black politicians. I was like, because you have a duty. You know, your yeah. ancestors died for you to do this. See, it's different for the black people. We had to fight tooth and nail and literally give our lives to take these positions. Right. So to me, when you run as a black politician, you have the utmost duty to ensure that you are protecting your communities because you are walking in the footsteps of people who gave their life for you to sit in that seat as we speak. Right. And so when you have people like Joe Armstrong, who's representing the 15th district, for almost 20 years and that happened under his watch you have to look at that and say okay joe armstrong you might be a great person overall as a human being but when it comes to politics you stink because you didn't protect your community you didn't look after it you allowed things to come in here and take from us instead of making sure no it stayed here um and then addition to the fact when you may have knew about things that maybe you couldn't pay say stopping your power like you needed the mass support of the community to do that you didn't inform us of stuff until right. after it happened and then it was like well we can't do nothing now that it happened right. and so i said okay we gotta start finding candidates that are saying out loud this is what I represent. This is what I stand for. This is what I do. And I'm going to ensure, guarantee that this won't happen under my watch. Or if it does, I will first let you know from the get-go so that we can stop it dead in its tracks together. Be proactive. Yes, exactly. And so Black Coffee took that forefront. Right now on our page, I think I've endorsed almost eight candidates. And they're in all levels of, of the government. I have federal candidates we're endorsing. I have state candidates we're endorsing. And I have local candidates we're endorsing. And there's a reason for that. Because locally... This is a chain of command. So Fed says one thing, state gets it, modifies it to their needs, mm -hmm. and it comes down locally, and it's kind of, that's it. You know what I'm right. saying? You can do a few things here and there, but overall, this is it. Yeah. And so I said, okay, local level we need to endorse because we need people that are going to, one, interpret that language. Because, again, it's black and white, right? We can all read the same thing on this paper and walk away with a whole different thought. Right. Right. So I was like, we need people that's going to interpret this language in the vision, in the eye, and mindset of not so much bipartisan or um, unbiased, but more like if this was information put to me, then how would that happen if I was in the community right now? Mm -hmm. And seeing yeah. it through the eyes of the most need. Yeah. Like I said, if you represent an affluent community, then to me, you should be looking at we need to maintain what we have here, but we need to invest in areas that are not like us so that they can get to us like here. Right. And then we can all start to move towards developing in that perspective because we're equally developing areas now. And so that's what we needed. We needed people to do this in the sense of when we make decisions, are we making it in the interest that everybody can benefit from? Or are we doing it where a few people can do it? From. Everyone needs to move forward. Exactly. And so that's why Black Coffee said, okay, we're going to start identifying and endorsing those candidates. Mm -hmm. On the state legislative level, especially, more like not so much the local, but more on the state legislative level, is what you start to see where it doesn't matter where you're at, you can interact with that level of legislation because their decision is statewide. Right. And so that's why I said, okay, we got to get an alignment going on, like this way and this way. And I was like, so if I can endorse a candidate out of Nashville, a candidate from Knoxville, a candidate from Chattanooga, and a candidate from Memphis that is in a full alignment agenda of what we're trying to do, then guess what I just did? I got four people going to state legislation now that I directly work with, and we're going to start writing legislation together that's going to benefit this whole state, especially our areas that are being affected now. Yes. And so I was like, okay, this is the move. This is how the game is about to be played. Yes. But then I said, okay. I need to get them to support. Like, I need my state and my Fed doing like this together. Right. And our local doing this with them, too. Yes. So then I said, okay, let's not stop at the state level. Let's go get us some federal candidates. Okay, and so yeah. now I'm endorsing two senators, one from Memphis, one from Nashville. And I'm endorsing three congresswomen. Uh, one from the Tri-County area, one from Nashville, and one from Memphis as well. Okay. And so now, and it's crazy because... 
uh, I host this show with Matt Park, who's running for the 15th district right now, okay. and it's called our um, it's called our uh, political justice platform. It's, it's every Thursday at, at 5:30 we host this show, okay. and what I do is uh, Matthew with fellow candidates that are running come on to the show with Black Coffee, uh, the candidates that we're endorsing. Matt is an endorsed candidate of ours. And we talk about issues from school to uh, police reform to uh, black banks and what that looks like, black agendas, education, you know, all types of things. Whole spectrum. Whole spectrum. Yep. And these are people that are basically going to work together because what I am saying to the candidates that are endorsed on the Black Coffee is that we're expecting you all to work together. That means if something happened on the federal level, you're supposed to ring the alarm right here to the state level and let us know, and they're supposed to drop it down here to us so we can know. Yes. So that way if we need to push something, we can already know before it hits the table, you know, like we're watching policies been passed all over the place. But the question is, who gets the heads up to that? Right. And so that's what we've been establishing, where Kenneth is like, I'm going to give you the heads up. We're going to make sure that you know about what's happening from the get-go so because we're going to need your support. And I love it because all our candidates are talking to me like, yes, the activists need to stay involved in this process because you all are our warnings at the bottom level, just like we're going to be your warnings at the top level. Yeah. And that way, before anything even gets to get hit the table for a vote or anything, we're going to have so much noise behind it, whether we if we support it or not, that right. when it gets to the table, we're going to force the fellow politicians to get either on board or off board because they're going to be like, man, y'all knew before it even got here and, and Whatever we had planned, it ain't going to work out because they know. They know Your now. Voice is there. Yes, we know. Yes. And so that's what Black Coffee is focused towards. Building that network from the federal, state, and local level of politicians in alignment, in agreement that people need to be put first. Our priorities are first. Not the rich people. Not the people that can pay you a million dollars to write this bill so he can move his, right. his business out of country. But what are the people needs first? Mm -hmm. And so um, that's why I call them people candidates. And that's a real dream driver of black coffee black lives matter to me is more of the advocate platform that's where we come out loud and say we're sick and tired of being sick and tired we want the masses to hit the streets with us and walk through the areas of where our politicians live and stay at to let them know that you have no choice but to hear our voice because we're not going anywhere anytime soon so i think it's beautiful how it's all broken out you have a social service that helps the people you got another one that's endorsing candidates that's going to help you help them yes. and then you got another one that's like we got the voice and we're going to keep it loud and clear so i think it's pretty dope to have a tripod set up I was yes. yeah. Say, yeah. Yes. All encompassing. Trilogy, yes. <laughs> yeah. So right right now we're, we're this week and past week have, have been just instrumental in the voice of the African American community. Mm -hmm. We're seeing a lot of uh, peaceful protests and we've seen protests that didn't weren't sanctioned by certain entities, mm -hmm. especially here in Knoxville is what I was told. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so can you speak a little bit to some of that, of what, what we're seeing? We're seeing the positive of people coming together mm -hmm. uh, with a, a sanctioned, unified goal. Mm -hmm. And then we also have an, another group, and, and I'm ignorant when it comes to this because I, I just, it was told to me that there was another group that has an agenda as well, but it's not necessarily supported by the Black Lives Matter movement. Correct. Can you share a little bit about both of those? Yeah. Okay, so Friday was dope. You know, um, we had much, much compliment. I don't know if you watched City Council last night, but many of our council members complimented our efforts with the protest, how it was peaceful, yet it was effective, it was powerful, it demonstrated everything. Mm -hmm. It allowed our city to get some of that tension and frustration off of us. Um, and so it was well complimented, very well complimented event. Um, and then, you know, yes, again, historically, historically, this is a historical thing. Historically, it is no secret that you have, um, racist people, you have, um, 
Blue Lives Matter people, you know, uh, you know, you have these adver adversary groups and organizations as well. Right. And historically, it is understood that these groups are known to try to entice rioting or to even portray rioting to the group. You know, right. uh, one of the things and that's why I said it's good to have a network system like that. But one of the things that was coming through the Black Lives Matter channel, especially, was that um the whole thing that we were seeing on news about the courthouse being caught on fire, or even now with the right. Indianapolis situation that set the precinct on fire. It's mixed storylines coming in, but I believe my fellow leaders. And when they told us that that was not the protesters, that that was people trying to make it look yeah. like the protest, I think there's even a picture that's been caught by the Minneapolis cops, supposedly, that set that yeah. precinct on fire, and his wife, his ex-wife apparently has blasted him for it. Like, that was him. I know who oh, did that. Yeah. That's okay. him. Um, and so the same thing with the Nashville. Supposedly, from what we're getting from Black Lives Matter Nashville, that wasn't them. That was, again, an outside adversary trying to make it look like it was Right. Them. They arrested the guy that right. uh, was caught yeah. on Yes, and he was a white it. man, exactly. Yeah. And so that was the reality. And so, um, you know, then we come here to Knoxville. We know the KPD just released the video from Market Square today. Yeah. Same thing. It was nothing but white kids out there. Same exact storyline. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, yeah, so, you know, we have uh, energetic, excited, ready-to-go youth. And sometimes people get caught up in the glitz and glamour of what that looks like. You know, yeah, when yeah. we had Friday, you saw the cameras, you saw the right. microphones, you saw all the political, you saw the church people, you saw everything that's going on. Right. And for young youth, that can be like, whoa, I need to get into I that. that. I need, I want to do that. I want to do that right, right there. But there's a process to this. Mm -hmm. This doesn't happen overnight. You don't get here by just saying, okay, I'm going to go outside and I'm going to, no, no, yeah. no. It's much networking, much commitment, much time and dedication. Literally, you do it for life. Like I like I tell people, I do this for a living. Yeah. I will die for this. I'm okay with that. And it's, it doesn't bother me at all. Mm -hmm. um, again, because like I said, I'm following the footsteps of my answers. I'm following history. How do we get here and where do we need to go? And so I have already made the choice and the commitment that I am in it to win it from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. Or if it means that I got to go out, with with it with with, the, with my finger on the trigger, whatever it is, I just know I'm in it to the very end, literally. Right. And so, um, so the energetic youth, I was excited about. Yeah, yes, we need the youth. I need somebody to pass the torch to. You know, mm -hmm. I didn't necessarily get the torch passed to me. I kind of got chosen for this, mm -hmm. and then the torch kind of showed up after the fact. Right. And yeah. so it was like you know, but I'm realizing that's a mistake because you know somebody uh, elder brought it to my attention about this conversation about passing the torch because they said that they said. Who is MLK's predecessor? Who was Malcolm X's predecessor? Right. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. There are none. No one got right. the torch yeah. passed. And it might be because life got cut short. Okay, that's true. But at the same time, somebody should be getting trained up. You know, Malcolm died yeah. at 33. And MLK died, I think, at 36 or 37. I'm 34. I'm sitting between these two ages. Yeah. And so I'm in a big process of making it at this point because our leaders have not made it outside of this era. My goal is to get to 40. I'm like, if I make it to 40, we might be really able to do some things for real, for real out here. But I got to get to 40 first. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. But being aware of that history, I'm looking for a youth to train right now because I'm like, if I don't make it, at least I know I left something to somebody who says, you know what? I know where I'm supposed to pick up off from because Constance told me, and this is where we're going now. We're going to continue forward. Um, and so, yeah, that was the focus, which was the youth were excited. And so I was excited. Like, ooh, I'm going to be able to find me a protege or two, right. maybe three, you know, yeah. and maybe one for me, one for David, one for me. Like, we're going to find us some yeah. protégés. We can keep this thing going. However, uh, passion takes over. It does. And this is where white privilege and entitlement kind of comes into the picture too. Because mm -hmm. again, this is a black movement. 
This is a black led movement. This is black leadership knowing the work we put in, the organization and structural pieces that have to go into doing something like that in this movement. And so when you see energetic, hyped up, emotionally passionate running youth, especially white youth, that's the problem we're having now. Because, see, when the news tells the story, it's not going to be some white kids within Market Square tearing everything up, as we've already seen. Right. It's going to be Black Lives right. Matter was tearing up things. Or even worse, black youth was tearing up things. And so I was like, this is a problem. We don't want you doing this because we have a whole agenda. And that's why I was trying to get the youth to understand. We have an agenda. If you mm -hmm. listen to our rally, we laid out a set of specific demands. Number one, the body cameras on the chest. Because when yes. I watch George Floyd, I see Philly Feet. Philly Feet was last summer. Where is Dylan Williams? You see what I'm saying? Like, this is still a concern that we have here. We have our own George Floyd going on down here. Mm -hmm. So that's what we took with that movement on Friday. It was like, we're going to raise the voices of the, those who've been killed by police officers because as black people, we are sick of that. But also at the same time, we're going to use this opportunity to raise our own platform locally about our issues of what we got a George Floyd going on down here about. And let's see if we can get some correction done to that at the same time. Right. And so the demands came out. Body cameras. Unnegotiable. Like I told city council last night, that is an unnegotiable thing. Mm -hmm. I spoke to Chief Thomas yesterday and today, and it is a guarantee. That is an ensure I can guarantee. I can guarantee say at this time, we are getting body cameras on our KPD officers. Well, with, at this point with our technology, there is absolutely no it's reason not. that it should not just be standard across the country. Right, right. I mean, you can afford to buy a tank for a military, for a, uh, a military. Mm -hmm. You can afford to buy a tank for yeah. a police department, but you can't afford to buy body cameras for everybody. Agreed. Right. GoPro. Hello. I mean, right. there are right. ways to make this happen. It right. is not reaching for the stars to make that correct. Uh, to make that happen. Correct. And I totally agree. Exactly. Like I told, that's what I've been telling. Like it's 2020, guys. I mean, my cell phone can even be a camera at this point. Like it's no and excuse. They are. Right, right, exactly. Without that, right, there wouldn't be a lot of the accountability. Right, right. And so that was the first step. We was like, yes, body cameras, unnegotiable. We've seen it since last year. Body cameras. So mm -hmm. we're not going to talk about that anymore. We're asking. It's, it's just what it is. It's a demand. It is the demand. Body cameras. The second one was mental health, um, because yes. as I have absolutely agreed with, which was that when you watch what happened to. Um, Mr. Floyd, um, or even some of these other black people have been killed by the police officers in traffic stops, petty crime stops, mm -hmm. whatever it may have been. And the fit of the description even has even came across the table. Some of these incidents, um, you find that what I've always been saying, like I told chief Thomas, I said, we are overworking our police force. Let's just be a little bit honest about that. I'm an ex military person. So I know it's like to have to be a combat medic, uh, a bomb expert engineer, and you know, a mechanic, maybe even yeah. too, if it comes down to it, but also can do paratrooping. And I know how to parachute out of plane. See what I'm saying? So it's a lot of pieces. You know it. Yeah. Yes. And so I would like to believe, or I know, I know it's true because that's why we're like watching National Guard deploy in some of these spaces that have gotten so rioty out of control that the police just have no say so. So the the, right. the, the militaries came in, but that's the catch. I believe the military is better trained because, like I said, when I went through these different training programs that I just named off that I had with the military, I spent somewhere six months to a year in that training before right. I came out and got to apply it real life scenario. Mm -hmm. Whereas with our police departments, they're getting like what four to six weeks of the same training, right. and now they're supposed to go apply that. Not the same thing. Right. Matter in fact, it takes longer to be a hairdresser than it does to be a police officer as a whole. True. So you see what I'm saying? So, yeah. yeah. So who's getting trained out here? You know what I'm right. saying? So no. So we had, I was like, you know, we're, we are overworking our police forces. We're asking them to be the Army Swiss knife, and they're just not the Army Swiss knife. Right. And so it's like, 
Well, like I told Chief Thomas, because she was talking about, oh, we need the guys to stand the third. I said, but yeah, you need your guys to be effective and efficient at their job. Mm -hmm. I was like, so think about it. If you allow mental health professionals to join your force, you're taking something off your officer now. Mm -hmm. You ain't got to do that no more. If you get to a scene and you see a schizophrenic guy out there with his clothes out talking to the wall, you know that's mental health. I want yes. you to report back to your car, get on your radio, and say, hey, I need the mobile crisis unit. I need my XYZ, yeah. whatever you want to name it, but we need our mental health support out here. I was like, then what happens to the officer? He goes into his true duty, which is protect and secure. I was like, yes. so then what he does is stay on the scene. He don't leave it. He stays on the scene, but he's not approaching the person with the issue. Right. And if anything, he becomes a perimeter to, to that person and tell people, no, you back up. They're the ones breaking down. And since we're still yep. consciously prepared, we're going to stay out the way until our mental crisis get here. Or like I told police chief today, you know, Portland, Oregon has an excellent mobile crisis unit set up up there. Matter of fact, in their design, the police don't respond at all. They don't want them on the scene because we know police agitate things and make things go crazy. I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it's ironic that with people with mental health, even when they're in mental health states, they recognize the police. I think that's so crazy that they can do that. You know, right. and I'm like, yeah, so that that's just interesting how the yeah. state of the mind works. Um, and that may even show the trauma that police really do bring to the community. I think that's part of it, too. So it's still a mental health factor. Well, and if you don't know, like, I have friends in the mental health field, and if you don't know, like, how to handle that, it can, it works. Escalates it oh, yeah. fast. It just, yes. it just goes from bad to worse. Ooh, it's incinerated yes. really quick, right. And so that's why I expressed to Chief Thomas. And when I brought that to her attention, I could see the light bulb go off. And her be like, mm -hmm. you're right. I could maybe save my some of my people with some stress right. of overtime and other things if we had this assistance or support. Um, and so, yes, yeah, so that was the other factor. You need mental health support because, like I said, when we watch these encounters with the police officers, I always think about if you're a mental health professional, that's the job of a mental health professional. It's not there to make contain just the public. It's to contain mm -hmm. those officers. And I know for a fact if, if Minnesota had a productive and established mental health network with their police forces – uh, 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 George Floyd would be alive right now because the mental health professional would have walked up and probably tackled him off of him and be like, right. you can't do that. And matter of fact, you report back to the station because I need you to check in for mental health yourself at this point. Right. Clearly right. something must be wrong with you because mm -hmm. ain't no way somebody going to sit there and suffocate a person clearly hearing them say, I can't breathe. They're not and, just looking out for, they're not just looking out for the people that have been called to help. They're also looking out for the officers. Right. So it's right. an extra backup. It's a two-way street. Right, exactly. And so, like I said, when I expressed that on understanding to Chief Thomas, I saw her light bulb go off, and I think that's when she really was like, yes, we need to address mental health. Um, so like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm proud to announce that Chief Thomas is currently collaborating with the Black Black Coffee, Black Lives Matter, and the Sleeve Sunnis tertiary uh, system to establish with them some type of mental health program. It's, it's just in the works. Literally, we have just opened the door conversation, just started talking about it, but it is something that I hope to see at least one of the first true steps roll out next year. Um, and so it's exciting to hear Chief Thomas open her mind to that. And I, I love it. I love it. I, I, I'll be honest, you guys. I might have misjudged Chief Thomas. She might really actually be all right. For real, for real. Um, and then the last part was PARC. PARC is the Police Advisory Review Council. Um, and yeah. to me, PARC is the critical piece to the community and the police relationship. It's like the middleman. It's the bridge. It is the bridge for the two sides to meet. Um, because one of the concerns that we are definitely having in the African-American community here locally, but across the country. And these, as I said, it's so crazy how with black people, no matter where you at, it's really the same conditions. Poverty, gentrification, high crime rates, drug, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's all this going on in the same places. I could be anywhere in any hood. doesn't matter. I'm going to see the same thing like I see in our area anywhere else. And so... 
the issues we're having in Knoxville, you know, it's crazy. We had that protest on Friday, and then one of my friends' um, family member was killed the very next day. Broad daylight at that, like 12 or 1 o'clock in the day. Family was gunned down. And the crazy part, for no reason. Innocent bystander. Somebody just arrived through and started shooting. And the innocent bystander gets hit. And even worse part is that he's a fellow military person. So I feel some type of way about that. He had just got out of basic training and came home. So he's probably coming home for his visit. I was going to probably dip back out for his next part of his training, which is AIT. So that's just messed up all around. You yeah. hear you have a young black man who's trying to do the right thing, not going to fall into the stereotypes and statistics that normally fall for young black men in this area, trying to make a change in difference and do something better with his life, and y'all just take his life for no reason. And so this is frustrating, right? Absolutely. Now, Here's the best part of the story. Somebody knows what happened. But because we have poor community and police mm -hmm. relationships, do you think our police is ever realistically going to find out about that? No. Probably not. And it's frustrating even more because, like I said, it's personal now. It's personal. Like, I want to find this person. But it doesn't. But not to discredit anyone else who's lost a loved one out here, I want to find the person every time it happens in our community. Because, again, it's my community. And I feel some type of way every time it happens. And so... Uh, you know, that's the frustrating part that we have because, again, I, I and like I told the police chief today, if we had those better relationships, you all probably could solve a whole lot of stuff in our communities going on. I was like, but because yeah. there's such great distrust, you don't know anything because they won't talk to you. And then they're willing to talk to me, but then I got to guarantee their safety. Like, they'll never know you told me. I got You will never, you know what I'm saying? And I was like, it shouldn't be like that. People should be able to come out to the front street and say, he did that or she did that with no problems because they know that they are protected and safe in their own community. And we have that great relationship with our police department who's going to get that person off the streets and they're going to properly face for their criminal charges and actions. And so, like I told Chief Thomas, I said, we have to use part to start building that relationship it is a must it is designed for police oversight for a reason because we know we got some messed up people on the police force again you want to talk about the police department or the police force as a whole in america you got to be honest about that the police came from slave catching okay can we be honest about that slave catchers is the creation of the police force that's the first true format of its existence it didn't become police till later on down the road but then it was established and it was slave catchers then you move to the modern era of the 50s 60s 40s and so on you have this thing known as kkk though and what did kkk do they infiltrated our police forces so you had race yep. soldiers being protected by law for their actions and crimes you know People forget about when the police sheriff and them used to participate in the lynchings and the hangings. They'd be standing. You, you know, you can see pictures. They're standing right, right there in the, oh, yeah. with their badges and their guns up, yeah. and there's a black man hanging from the tree. Right. So they participate in that behavior. And then we have affirmative action, and we have the civil rights movement and all these other things. And we have uh, Jim Crow, and we have the Board of Education, and, you know, all this. And we have um, Thurgood Marshall, who's challenging these laws and challenging these platforms. And so we get to the point where racism and segregation and Jim Crow didn't disappear, it became institutionalized. Mm -hmm. That's why you see DAs coming out saying, that's a justifiable death. Hell, they already trying to say George Floyd didn't die from a choke of, it, of the knee. They're trying to say the man had a heart attack, oh, yeah. which might be possible, but it wasn't because of the heart attack. It was because he was getting choked out, losing air, and then he had the heart attack. So regardless of the fact, the death right. is caused by the officer. And I was like, see, they're saying that because they're already trying to spin it where they're going to be able to say this was a justifiable death. I'm telling you, they're going to try to spin it that way, just like we watched with Philly Feet. Billy Phoebe had a medical examiner deem his shots as um, homicide because they were all from the back, meaning that he had to be going this way and you had to do this, not he was coming towards you and you shot him here like you were right. being attacked. And so even with all of that information, 
D.A. Charming Allen deemed that death as what? Justifiable. And then Phil, and then Dylan Williams is disappearing into thin air. We ain't seen him, heard from him, or nothing. So I was like, either he's fired off the police force, or they done stuffed him somewhere and said, just stay here for a few minutes so right. we can find him right. when it's safe to bring you back out. And so that's the problem that we're having. And that's why I said Park is created for that, though. So that's where Park comes in. And this is where a state legislator comes back into play, too, because um, – one of the luxuries of having so many candidates running for office, you get access to a lot of information. And we found out through the state Tennessee legislature last year, 80 uh, le state legislators voted to take part subpoena power away. Now, they still have it, but it's a loophole to now. It used to be just accessible. Like, we can use this, we can get this, and we can right. do that. Now, it's got to go through a couple of extra steps to get access to it. And it's like, well, as a politician... Why would I take away power for the community to have some type of oversight and voice to the police department, especially, again, if I'm a black politician, knowing that relationship of what that's like? Why would I take that power away and say, no, maybe we need to find a way to give more power? That's what it should be. It should be the opposite. It should have been more power, more funding, not let's take some money and make them weak. No, you need to empower that. Yeah. And so, like I told um, Chief, I'm sorry, Chief Thomas and Andy, I told them both. I said, yes, I know the legislation has said and done some things, but trust, I'm working with state legislators and candidates right now to restore that power. And I'm really believing, if not next year, maybe the year after, that power will be put back to par. Because I know the people I endorse are going to fight for that to come back. Um, and then I also told them, I said, even though we do have that legislation, I was like, locally, you're still not limited to not do that. I said, like, you can easily... Find a way to charterize it, amend it, or whatever you got to do. Amend it is our favorite word. That's what that means. We're going to amend something. So amend that and put it back, saying that we know the state legislators said this, that, and the third, but because of our relationship apart, how we believe in that program, what we know it does for our community, we're going to maintain and amend that to say that our part will maintain that power. So that's what we need to have happen here. Yeah, so like I told Indian Chief Thomas, I was like, y'all need to ensure the relationship with Park. And again, Chief Thomas was very receptive to that. Like, she agrees. Like, yes, we do need to keep Park in power. She does want to collaborate a better relationship with Park on the police side. And, yes, definitely try to build that bridge to the community so that that relationship can start to flow and start to move and start to become more effective. Because, again, we have to do something in our communities to drive down this 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 actions that are taking place with these guns. I mean, my goodness, it's so insane. Um, but again, even that has a history and a factor to it. Cause you know, I tell you all the time, how many planes, trains, boats, etc., do black people own? Right. We don't. So somebody else is bringing that stuff to us. Mm -hmm. But again, they're using it for their own drive and their own necessities and even for their own need. Because right now with gentrification being in our community, uh, you know, East Nashville is labeled what? The gun zone. Now, what does that do to property value? Right. And if I'm a developer, I'm running to the East Nas because I'm like, boy, I can get pennies on the dime out here right now. Like, I can get anything I want. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Whereas in West Nashville, they don't have that label, so their property value is way up here. So it's going to cost me a little bit more to develop out here. But if I know I can go to an area where I'm getting pennies on the dime for it because they got a gun zone and it's a crime rate area and I can come in and build it back up, right? okay, where you think I'm going? I'm going east side with that. And I was like, so to me, when you call East Knoxville the gun zone, that label needs to be taken off of us. We are right. not the gun zone. Right. We are the area where the predominant black people live at. And like I tell you all the time, too, if you're going to talk about black-on-black -black crime, we're going to have to talk about where that comes from. What's the root of black-on-black -black crime? Poverty. What's the poverty rate for black people here? 42%. What's the percentage of black people in this area? 11%. Now explain that to me. Right. How? You see that problem with that? Yeah. How? 
So don't tell me that you're not purposely making it poor and purposely allowing crime to happen and purposely then turn around labeling these labels that late property value drop to nothing and purposely allowing uh, developers to fly in there and like uh, flies on honey and, right. and they're doing what they're doing in our community. This is the design. And that's why I tell people it's called the agenda. Call it what it is. The agenda. The agenda is in effect. And we as a black nation got to wake up to the agenda. This is an old thing. They've been doing it for years. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you how they first started. How many uh, liquor stores do you think you pass on East on, on East Magnolia when you're driving down it? <laughs> I can oh, think I about five. I could have told I, you know what I could have told you that like yeah. a year ago. Yeah, I want to say about five. I can think of about one, two, three, four, five. I know where five <laughs> are for a fact. Five. Now I know how to drive home and pass at least five. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, go down Broadway, cut up over. To exactly, Pike. they're all over there. Yeah. Now, when you start going into West Knoxville, how many liquor stores do you think you can realistically pass out that way? They got them too, but yeah. they ain't, ain't at the same number that, that they are in our community. See right. what I'm saying? And so that's the saying. There is an agenda. Mm-hmm. There is an agenda. There is an agenda. You know right. what I'm saying? And that's why I said that uh, the dynamics of the fight is smarter. You know, like I said, like I told. Um, Gwen McKenzie and them and all of them last night at the council meeting. We're going to be a little bit smarter with this. You know, nowadays, if you look on social media, one of, the, one of my favorite smarter moves that black people are doing when it comes to racist people, especially racist white people, is they're not getting in this whole, oh, you're racist. They're not doing the white swing. They're not doing that. They're saying, okay, we're going to take your uh, racist comments. We're going to make them public. And guess what we're going to do now? We're going to tag your employer. It's uh-huh. hard to be racist when you ain't got no job, <laughs> you ain't got no house, you ain't got no car, and your wife is leaving you because you can't provide that comfortable lifestyle no more. You see what I'm saying? The game is getting smarter. Like, okay, you can be racist all you want, but you ain't going to be economically gaining while you've been racist. Right. And so I like that kind of model. I love it, matter of fact. Like, what a way to, mm, gutch punch somebody right back. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm not going to lie. I get a, I get a... I get a sense of joy every time I see one of those. I mean, there was a, I I had some friends. There was a, a nurse at uh, mm-hmm. one of the hospitals. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to say where, mm-hmm. but um, lost her job for that stuff. Lost she was her doing. job mm-hmm. because she sent private. She sent private messages directly to a young man, mm-hmm. telling him to basically kill himself. Yes, and using a lot of derogatory language. Um, and what an irony! She had her whole job location listed right there yes. above her name. It's like <laughs> you have all of your information public right there on your Facebook page and people got all up in arms like oh well that's you know this her private messages you Mm -hmm. can't she didn't put that out there for the public no 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 she put that out there for the public Mm -hmm. and she made her sentiments very real Mm -hmm. and what you do in your private time is fine that's fine but the second that you work in a profession where you're expected to say that uh, don't say it yeah where you're expected (laughs) to give equal treatment to every Mm -hmm. single person that walks through that Mm -hmm. business doors Mm -hmm. you are compromised Mm -hmm. you can't Mm -hmm. offer that as somebody who's supposed to be a caregiver and a Mm -hmm. caretaker if Mm -hmm. you're reaching out to some person and telling them to kill themselves and then falling back on it being a private message that is not how this works so say that she lost her job she deserves it yeah she deserves it now they're going after her license did you know that oh they were actually working on a report her to the I mean, state medical board right now as we speak. Mm. Yeah. She's supposed to take care of people. Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, you can't do that. People. And you that's cannot what said, take care of people while wishing ill on others. Yes. And like you just said, this is what we're talking about. You're in public service line work. Now, same thing for the police department. This is a public service line work. Now, mm-hmm. think about that. You have that mindset, and you're coming into our forces with a badge on. And on top of that, you patrol black communities. 
he don't belong or she don't belong out there at all. The same way that that nurse don't belong there, you don't belong in our police force. Exact same thing. Um, and so, yes. Yeah, and so, it loops back into mental health. All the way back Loop, to everything, it. Literally, everything that literally. we've talked about loops back into one of these three things that you've brought up. Right. And this right. specifically loops back into that mental health right. uh, aspect where, you know, if somebody doesn't feel that way coming in, maybe there's something in the department that is causing them to start feeling that way. There need to be resources available to make sure that that is nipped in the bud. Facts. Facts. Mental health is a real thing. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's crazy because we have watched mental health grow from a stigmatized thing to it's a real thing. We have to start addressing it. So I'm excited for mental health. Like I said, I'm a recipient of mental health myself. And so it is. It's very exciting to see mental health finally get the attention and the respect that it deserves, um, as well as the fact that people are getting serious about the necessary treatment that it needs to have supported. So we can really start getting people back to what is considered a healthy, well state of being. Exactly. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, so I have a. I is have it a, hot in here? Yeah, I mean, I know, a little right? bit. Just a little bit. You, you know, get a little warm up in here. Right. Right. Okay. So, so I have a question. It's going to be just poorly phrased, and I already know that. So that normally means I probably shouldn't answer it, or it needs to be asked. Not asked because we need it. Yeah. So okay. So speaking to you'd mentioned young youth, especially white young youth. Mm-hmm. What can they do? What can people like me? What can what can we do? What My boy already got yeah, it figured out. Like, like, yes, yes. What, what can, yes. What can the, we do to support the cause without, because like you would mentioned, a lot of people want to be on the front, forefront. Mm-hmm. You know, you want to be on, on the front of the picture. Mm-hmm. You don't want to be a dot on the back. Mm-hmm. But what, what can we do to... Be on the right side of history. To, mm-hmm. to look back one day whenever my grandkids, right. you know, are asking me, hey, were you there? And what did and you I do? Say, exactly. Yeah, mm-hmm. I can either say, oh, I shut off social media and didn't bother with it. Or I did X, Y, and Z and know that I made them proud because of my actions today. So what can Correct. I what can I do? What can we do? Correct. So it's always the famous question, of course. That's what can we do? <laughs> so here's what it is. I'm going to go step by step with the youth. For the white people and for us that are saying they don't want to be the dot in the back. I got something for everybody because this movement is big. It's not one person or two people. It's going to take everybody. I tell you all the time, it's going to take the village what we're trying to do. Right. It is a serious change. Like he just said, it's going to be historical. And this is, I think, some of the few steps building up to the historical climax. Like yeah. we're going to have a historical moment really, really soon. Mm-hmm. And so for white people, it's simple. Racism is your problem. That is your issue. It is going to take white people to address the racism and the culture and the creation of that. Because literally, that's where it came from. White mm-hmm. people created racism. Mm-hmm. And it was a systematic design. Um, and I want people to understand something. When, when black people say that, like, well, racism is your problem, it's true. Because what I tell people all the time is that black people are the victims of racism. Mm-hmm. We receive the hatred, what racism, we receive the actions of what racist hatred can actually create and do in the mindset of people. Again, it is mental health. You know what I'm saying? But we were victimized with that. Like, I'm minding my business. Emmett Till is an excellent example. Emmett Till walking down the block, minding his business, eating his little lollipop or whatever. And still to this world, the white lady did come out and say she lied. So from my understanding, maybe he never whistled. Maybe he was whistling. But the point is that he never whistled at her. But she said that. 
Mm-hmm. And so that just shows how the hatred of racism is real and how we're victimized by it. He was minding his business. He wasn't stunting that white lady. He was in an area that he knew stay away from the white people because it wasn't safe for him. But maybe he was in an area where it was understood as long as black people weren't bothering white people and white people weren't black people, it wasn't going to be no problem. And now here he is walking down the sidewalk minding his business and his white woman yells, he whistled at me. And what a horrendous death Emmett Till died from. I find it painful to look at the pictures of Emmett Till because if you look in his eyes, because his eyes were open, you can see the hurt, confusion, pain, and the why me all up in his eyeballs, in his face. It is clear he suffered through that. But again, he's a victim of that. He didn't create racism. So why would you go ask Emmett Till's family, you need to do something about racism? Oh, no. White people and that white woman, y'all need to do something about racism. So I keep telling white people, racism is your problem. And it's true because I ain't saying everybody's family is racist, and, and I'm not saying every white person has somebody racist in their family, but I'm willing to bet some, uh, most of us got a grandmom or a granddaddy or two or a great uncle or a great aunt too who's mm-hmm. still living out the Confederacy rebel truth days. Right. And riding high on why we should honor General Lee and all this other crap. You know what I'm saying? Or what's most recently going up in Nashville with the Buffer uh, uh, statue being up up there in the Capitol Hill. We have to start addressing that. Oh, I'm sorry. White people have to start addressing But it is a we. We have to start addressing that. That's a space where white people who are at the Thanksgiving Christmas dinner table having food with their family are going to have to say, Grams, I love you to death. But you're going to damage our relationship for forever. Meaning I won't stop loving you, but I ain't got to fool with you. Because I'm letting you know right now, especially if you got children sitting at the table right there, you have to stop that. Say, we don't act, behave, nor believe in that. That's from your era and time, and I'm going to respect that. But I'm going to tell you right now, this is new era, new time, and you can't continue to preach or practice that. Especially in front of my children, because I don't want them learning that. And if you can't respect my request, at least that when we're here to not practice that, our relationship is going to have to be the end here because I'm not going to tolerate this racist behavior or content any longer. That's what white people have to do. When you hear somebody yelling out, all lives matter. <laughs> Nobody said all lives didn't matter, but we are seeing that black lives are the ones that's been taken. So take that all lives matter crap and go somewhere with that because this ain't about that. This is about black lives matter. And if you can't respect that space where we're saying that black lives do matter and actually support and get behind that, then again, we might have to end our relationship because clearly we're not seeing the same picture here. Right. You know, right. all of that stuff, the little slick jokes and the little goofy snares and all of that has to stop. And white people have to put a stop to that. Y'all got to go check each other and say, this is not okay. Now, I get it. Some people are naive. Some people lack understanding. So some people are going to be receptive and make the corrective changes. Mm-hmm. Others are going to combat you and be like, well, this and third. And I hope that as white people, when you see that, that you still call that person out, but then you let that person know our relationship is over mm-hmm. because I don't support this mindset that you're carrying on. Right. I, I understand our ancestors got some things really wrong. And I agree. We're not our ancestors, but we are. See, that's the catch. I'm not my ancestors, but I am. I am because I'm still suffering from what they had to deal with way back when. And same thing, you're not your answers either, but you are because you still have the ability to take that hatred and victimize with it at the same time. So we are our ancestors. So when people yell out, well, I'm not like, yeah, you are though. Mm -hmm. You're benefiting right now. Right. It's the product of Of the environment. Yes. Yeah. Black people built America. Are we reaping the benefits of that? No. White people didn't really build America. Are you reaping the benefits of that? Yes, but why? Because the system was designed like that. Slaves and slave masters. See how that worked? And so for white people, you have to address racism. It is a must on every level. 
the workplace, the basketball court at your gym, the workout facilities, at the grocery stores, right here in this space if that's what's happening, out on the streets, riding a bus, going to the car wash. It doesn't matter. When you hear that stuff come out of somebody's mouth and they are white, you got to check them at the door. Like, no, we will not tolerate that here at all. Yeah. That's the white people's agenda. Youth, we love you. We appreciate you, and we want your involvement. But if you want to get involved, you need to find your Black Lives Matter chapters, or if you have a Black Coffee Justice in your area, you need to attach to that. Or if you have a nonprofit like Sleeps Who Needs, attached to that. That's where your involvement comes in. Because, again, we need to train and teach you. We want you here. We want you a part of this. But there's a process to this. And we need to educate you first before we start sending you out on the front lines. People forget that when the students were doing the sit-ins, in the 60s at the at counters and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. They didn't just send them out there and say, okay, go sit the counters. They went through intensive training. They had to go through getting battered and milk dumped on them and spit on and all that stuff by their trainers so that when they went to the counters to sit down, they were able to handle that and knew I cannot act violently because I'm defeating the purpose of the movement. We are demanding to be served here, and that's all we came here for. And there's nothing wrong for that because I have a right to be here to eat too. But I can't act violently and give them the fuel that they need so they can say, well, this is why you're not allowed here because when you come here, you're creating ruckus, and this is why you got to get out. That's why. And it's the same concept for now, you. We're not going to send you out there on the front line and say, yeah, go lead the movement, go lead the strike, go lead this and that and third and not train you because we're aware of the adversaries we just talked about. And so we need to first educate you on what they look like, who that is, and what they talk like, what they move like, how do their haircuts work, the tattoos I'd like to do. You know, that has to be a part of your training. So then when you do go out and you have that encounter, again, you know how to respond and how to deal with that. And so that's the concept for the youth. We want you here, but you need to be trained here first so you can go for it and do the next thing, the next work, or whatever that is necessary. I'm not going to ask nobody to go out. I mean, like I told somebody before, I said, it's like having a car and I need heart surgery. I'm not pulling up to the mechanic and telling him to do heart <laughs> surgery. Just like I'm not pulling to the doctor and telling him to work on my car. I'm going to the proper resources for that. And so it's the same thing. I'm not going to go tell you lead a ride and I know you don't know what you're doing. I'm going to say, no, come over and let me train you. And now you go lead the ride. And even then when you do it, I'm being in the back somewhere watching you just to make sure that if anything go left, I got you. And same thing with the students when they went to the lunch counter. Most of the time, one of the upper leaderships was there present. Like either they were in the, in the area of when it was happening or they were actually sitting at the counter with them. So you still never actually go out there by yourself. And so that's what the youth need to understand. You, you are a part of this, but we need to train you to be a part of this. It's not just run out the door and my emotional flare up and I'm going to go do something. That's not how it works. Yeah. And then lastly, black people, get on code. Unify, stand as one, buy black, support your black business, support your black community, support your black leadership. Don't be so quick to go defend somebody else when a black leader say, this is why we're not doing this, this is why we're not supporting XYZ. You know, uh, you know the Chinese and the blacks right now are having a really hard time too. We're not getting along very well either. Um, in some of the areas and in, in outside of our country anyways, we see where the Japanese and the Asians have put several derogatory, inflammatory comments up, as well as they've been attacking black people too. So it was a call out from the national level of our leadership to say, we're not supporting any Asian or Chinese business at this time until they understand they have to respect us too. I cannot name the amount of people in the black community came back and said, so you mean tell me I can't get my nails done no more? <laughs> what? And I was like, no, no one said you couldn't get your nails done no more. But I'm saying don't go to the Asians to get your nails done. Find you an African-American. Or in this case, maybe we do go support our Caucasian counterparties. But we're not going to let the Asian people keep getting our money for this. Not when they're disrespecting us and mistreating us. That's not how this works. And so I, I was frustrated by that because I thought, why do black people question fellow black 
leaders about why we're doing something or why they don't want to support doing it because they feel like they're losing a benefit. Like, all suddenly black is not the same quality as the Chinese or the Asian product version of it. And so it really threw me off when I said that. It, I mean, it really threw me off when I heard that. And so that's what black people need to understand. Get on code, okay? Get on code. One of my favorite clips ever in a news scene was Muhammad Ali, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, Patricia Lumbama, Stokely Carmichael, um, who else was it? Maya Angelou were all coming out this room. They were all leaving from a meeting. They had a private meeting. And when they came out, the first thing they took to Muhammad Ali was like, what was you back there talking about? And he was like, none of your business. Because what we want to talk about ain't for everybody to know. And that's why we did it behind closed doors. And that's kind of the concept for the black nation. We are traumatized and very disorganized. I think even Malcolm X said that. that we're not outnumbered, we're out-organized. And it's true, we are. We have had a lot of things coming our way to try to distract, divide, and et cetera. And so what I tell people all the time, with my fellow counterparts in leadership and stuff, don't get it twisted. We do disagree. We do argue all the time. Some, not all the time, but we do argue sometimes. Sometimes we do disagree. But that's the catch. We do it behind closed doors. Because we don't want our adversaries to see us divided, and then they try to tap into one of us and say, okay, well, we can help you do this, that, and the third, and we right. can make you the one. Because people forget that Malcolm X and MLK and a lot of the black leaders were killed by their own circle. Their Judas sat in front of them. In collaboration with the police and other things like that. I'm not saying it was all of them right. by themselves, but their Judas sat in the crowd with them. And so that's the concept of when we say get on code because we don't need any Judases in our crowd. We need to be one. And if someone does try to come to you and entice you to try to say, well, we can help you not constantly off and now you can be the top dog. The first thing you should say is, what the hell are you talking about? That's our leader. What do you mean turn on our leader and help you knock them off? Matter of fact, you just messed up. Because now what I'm going to do is I'm going to go back and tell the leadership who you are. In addition to fact, we're going to make sure that now we keep all eyes on you. That is on code. And if you disagree with me, you don't do it out in public and in front of everybody. We come behind our closed doors. And you say, you know what, Constance, I can't believe you did that stuff, blah, blah, We're going to have you out behind closed doors. When we walk out that door, we're together. Period. Right. What's y'all back to talk about? None of your business. Like Muhammad Ali said, none of your business at all. And so... That's the things that we have to do. White people, racism, youth, training and getting the torch passed for the future leadership. Black people, unite and become one. That If everybody did that, and plus the solidarity of action that we saw on Friday, meaning that when we call for you to come to us and stand with us in our actions of solidarity, that's when everybody show up. I think if we could do those four things, again, the change momentum is here. It's just, do we get over the hill? And how do we do that? And to me, those are the four key steps that have to play out to get us all the way over the edge. Because the next step is the leadership the, and the political leadership. And they're not hard to knock off. It's us. They're just, as soon as we franchise up, that's when they know it's over with. Right. And that's why they do all right. the things that they do to keep us divided. So, again, they're the easy part. The hard part is down here on ground zero. This is the work yeah. side. Once we get this figured out, we can knock them off in a day or two, maybe even less, 24 hours, <laughs> like real talk, 24, because sure. we're going to use our economical power. You know, I told people before, I said, you know, remember when gas was like outrageously high? Yeah. Now we're watching it be for pennies on the dime. In fact, they're not, they're tanking in the stock market right. on that. Yeah. Right. I was like, you know, what is ironic is that when they were charging us too much money for the gas, we could have done that then. All you had to do was stop buying gas 24 hours. For 24 hours, if every American said, I'm not leaving my house for nothing because I ain't paying for no gas. Just like we watched when this pandemic hit, gas would have done the same thing. Mm -hmm. It would have dropped to nothing. 
Right. And that's the example of how we could have unified even then. Now, think about we would have done that unification. We probably would have already been past this stage, and we might be in the middle of literally rebuilding America as we speak right now. But again, sometimes, unfortunately, it takes tragedy to bring triumph. And I feel like that's what we're going to have. I feel like a tragic is taking place. People are fed up and tired. And like I said, in less than a month, we watched three black lives senselessly be taken for no reason. That's quite a bit. Normally, in the past, we were kind of getting hit with like one here, one there, yeah. one here. But to have it back to back to back, it was like, ooh, we got a problem. Houston is serious. We have a major, major problem. And so that's what we're watching. We're watching tragedy move towards triumph. And I'm excited. I get excited when I see that yeah. start happening. Yeah. yeah. I feel like you're going to change. I mean, you're going to globally change. I can feel it. I mean, just like, I mean, it feels I like. I appreciate it. Yeah. Are you fired up yet? I am. Mean, it's hard not to be fired up yeah. when you're like, beside me. Yeah. 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 Body. Yes. yeah, cool. I like it. I like yes. it. Constance, thank you so much for joining us and, and being a, a part of the show. Um, if someone wanted to reach out to you and uh, just, just I, I guess if someone wanted to reach out to you and just, just. What am I trying to say here? Get more information. Just make connection with me. Yeah, so if you want to connect with me, my Facebook page is Constance Every. I am who I am. <laughs> as well as the fact, as I said before, Sleeps from Needs is on Facebook. Uh, Black Coffee Justice is on Facebook. Black Lives Matter is on Facebook. Um, I don't feel comfortable getting out my phone number or my address. <laughs> but I would say definitely use my social media platforms. I will be honest and say that if you go to the website, you will find a contact number located. Located there, the Sleeping website does list the number uh, for our office, so that's another great way. Call that number; you can contact with me that way as well. Um, uh, and, and additionally, you know, it's crazy, but I'm always out in my community. Catch me in the streets. I'm be real. Catch me in the streets. I am always somewhere in Knoxville doing something. <laughs> and so, uh, by all means, if you can't get through me through the social media platform, if you can't find me through the website, because the website lists the email, some other information like that. If you can't find me in those spaces, again, catch me in traffic, because I am always in our streets. I pound the pavement, literally. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Well, we appreciate you being here. Thank All right. You. Thank, thank you, you guys. So much. Yes. yes thank you so I much. appreciate y'all. Peace. <laughs>